merry daytime, you perpetual Brendans. Welcome to uh, episode 39 of the Blind Boy podcast. This is going to be a live podcast. If you, uh, you want to hear the proper podcast hug episode, number 38, I released that there on Wednesday. So give that one a listen. This podcast is a separate one. It's going to be a live podcast. The reason I'm doing this is live podcasts are a different mood to the regular Wednesday podcast, you know. They're not as relaxing. They're just as fun, but it's a different energy. So I figure I'll release the live podcast every so often. So this one, uh, it took place in Clanmel there during the week. And the reason I'm putting it up is I bought a new recorder, a Zoom recorder, and I'm very happy with the fidelity on this particular live podcast. I got a individual feed from the microphones on stage and then also a stereo two-signal mic in the crowd. So you have the intimacy of and clarity of being on stage, but then a sense of the room as well. Because it was kind of, there was about 300 people there. It was fairly busy, but it was great crack. Um, so anyway, before we go into to the live podcast, listen to Wednesday's episode, obviously. Um, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, share it amongst your friends. If you'd like to contribute to the podcast Patreon, please do. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. If you'd like to give me the price of a pint once a month, please do. If you don't want to, it's grand. Listen for free. No hassle. Trying to think, is there anything else I needed to fucking say before I go into the live podcast? Oh yeah. I have to put an advert in the middle of this thing. Because that's how the Acast software works. So what what we might do now is... Let's try and get the ocarina pause out of the way. Early. So that when you listen to the live podcast, it's not interrupted by we'll say fucking actually do you know what as well the British Army will not stop advertising on this podcast I've made several requests to fucking several requests from ACAST to stop the British Army advertising on this podcast but they won't and I don't know why probably my demographics in fucking in England I have uh, working class listeners in England and the British Army are circling them like vultures Saying, come on, have a bit of patriotism, come over to Afghanistan, do some bad shit. Expand the colonial empire under under a new name, we'll call it democracy. So, if the British Army do advertise on this podcast, fuck the British Army. Uh, the British Army in 1920, in Croke Park in Dublin, the British Army, uh, they invaded the pitch during an All-Ireland final, opened fire on the crowd, and... The un- unarmed crowd and the unarmed uh, Gaelic football players on the pitch. And they killed 32 people in cold blood in Ireland in 1920. In 1972, in Derry, in the north of Ireland, there was a, a march for civil rights for Catholics because Catholic civilians did not have proper rights in the north of Ireland in in the fucking 70s because of the British government so the British army opened fire on a bunch of unarmed civilian protesters and they killed 28 unarmed civilians that's the British army did that 
one of their greatest hits. Um, ah, yeah, there was, in the early 1970s, in the north of Ireland, there was a covert squad of the British Army called the Military Reaction Force. And they basically just, like, dressed like civilians and did drive-by shootings on civilians and murdered people. They had... They were legally allowed to commit murder on innocent, unarmed people. And the reason they did this was because the IRA was taking its fight to the British Army and the British Army figured, how about we do a lot of drive-by shootings in Catholic areas and then the Ra will think that that was the UVF. And what we'll actually do is start a sectarian war to distract the IRA's efforts against the British Army. So the British Army did that too. Um, now, fair play to the British Army on the Hitler stuff, alright? Fair play to you on that. But, like, just in Ireland, the level of massacres and, you know, murder of civilians by an operator of a fucking state. And I know what you're thinking. The IRA did a lot of bad shit too. They did. They absolutely did. I'm not fucking pro-IRA at all, especially the provisionals. But the IRA at least were going... Well, you know, we're a paramilitary organisation and we actively engage in terror. At least they're honest about it. The British Army are like, no, 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 we're a defence of the realm. We're we're honourable uh, British Army. Let's advertise on Blind Boys podcast and, and offer it to you as a career. So, go ahead, advertise on my podcast, British Army. Like, oh, what a fucking... <clears throat> like, Hezbollah started advertising on the podcast. It'd make international news. Do you know? Or the PLO. Are they still around? Or ETA. They're gone. But do you know what I'm saying? Bit of Hamas. Hamas coming onto the podcast to advertise. Be on Sky News. But the British Army. Oh, not a bother. Let's let's come into your space there where you're trying to listen to funny stories and mental health. And uh, yeah, yeah. Well, while you're listening to that. Sure, look. We'll pay you there to uh, go over to Afghanistan and do some shit yeah that's normal that's perfectly acceptable fuck off so anyway let's go into the live episode this took place in Clanmel and it had the it felt like a novena because it was in the middle of a car park in a marquee on a summer's evening and everyone was gathered round to listen to people speak as you do with novenas which is a kind of a weird tradition in Ireland except on this night and what I what I love about this live podcast I interviewed two very, very important people in within LGBT and queer activism in Ireland. And both of them grew up in Clanmel. And they grew up in Clanmel when being gay was illegal. And I just, I feel very humbled to have done this event in their hometown. To return to a public space in their hometown in 2018 where these two lads can speak about being queer, being gay, uh, what they went through and what they're doing now and their life experiences in the same town where it was illegal when they were growing up. So that was a massive privilege for me to have done. So I'll stop talking now. Oh shit, we got to do the ocarina pause. Okay, here's the ocarina pause um, for a digital advert to be inserted. And if it is the British Army, well, joke's on ye, lads. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, let us enjoy the live podcast you beautiful gorgeous cunts so the recording of the podcast will start shortly can you press the record button back there god bless um and i'm gonna bring on my guests and my guests are they're two long-term activists for lgbt rights in this country and they've been at it for a long time so i've got Tony Walsh, who is the founder of the Irish Queer Archive, and I've got Will St. Leisure, who's uh, an activist, an artist, and I'd like to invite them to the stage, wherever the fuck they are. Isn't What's this fucking crack? fabulous? The tent. Hello. I'm Blind Boy in Clonmel. How, how savage is that? <clears throat> At the Junction Arts Festival. You're from Clonmel, Tony, you are? Um, are you, you living here? Uh, no, I, was, well, I moved here at the age of four in 1964. You can see, do the maths. And, um, <laughs> and uh, so we moved here and um, we were called Black Foreigners. From, my dad's from Dungar- was from Dungarvan and my mum was from Rathmines. But we were called Black Foreigners when we moved here. That was a sort of shtick in the 60s. Um, and I left, I actually left 30 years ago when Star Wars was on in the Regal uh, Cinema. And when I came back 10 years ago, after a 30 year break, Star Wars was on in the IMC. It was quite amazing actually. It was like, everything's changed, but it's still the same. I, I arrived at the same time as you left. You have a clan male connection as well, Will, haven't you? Yeah, I lived here for, uh, from 1980 to 1991. So uh, what's the draw with clan male? <laughs> my dad was in the civil service. My dad was in the forestry, so we moved around quite a bit. So I lived in Ballyperine and Donegal, and we came to clan male And So your dad came to clan male to guard orchards. <laughs> yeah, he did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I came here like with a Camp Dodigal accent at the age of about uh, nine, which is kind of beaten out of me. That has been beaten out of you, yeah. Beaten out of me in the first week at school. And I, I, I disarmed the, um, the assailants with logic by saying, if I was really a Protestant, why am I at a Christian brother's school? Uh, why are we at St. Peter and Paul's school then? And they're like, 
Oh, right, okay, Grant. You're right then, fine. The logic did work. <laughs> yeah. Wait, well, it, it makes sense. Yeah, it does. It makes sense. They should have held up a piece of bread to you <laughs> and, and asked you, is this the body of a 2,000-year-old carpenter or is it merely a symbol? <laughs> that, that's how you find out if you're dealing with a Protestant. <laughs> Actually, if I'd been offered a yoke in 1978 when I was doing my leaving cert, I might have stayed, but anyway. <laughs> so, t uh, before we continue, because how I kind of do these is I tell the internet that I'm going to interview you, and then the internet gives me questions, because I find that the internet is a wonderful resource of various questions, rather than just me at home figuring out questions, you know. Um, but tell me a bit about... Tony, what crack are you up to? Tell us about the Irish Queer Archive. And as well, you're a bit of a legend of a DJ as well. You've been going back a while DJing. So tell us about that. Sure. So I came out in 79. I just finished a relationship with a French woman who actually discovered she was gay as well. It was like the blind leading the blind. <laughs> and um, and uh, uh, the gay liberation movement was about five years old at that stage. So like any 19 the, the what was gay liberation? Movement, yeah. Like as in... Around the world, or just Ireland? Well, no, or? in Ireland, in Ireland. So, yeah. like any conceited 19-year-old, I just wanted to go out and change the world. And like late 70s, early 80s, Ireland was just dirt poor, loads of emigration, uh, creatively very interesting, but socially shocking. It was a horrible time. Like, I've, I mean, I've had friends who were murdered, who died of AIDS, people who were murdered, whatever. So I've, I've seen, I've been either involved or been a witness to all of those developments over the last 40 years. And this was as a result of their sexuality? Yeah, well, also, do you know, here's the thing. Um, I think anyone who feels other, any Irish person, man or woman, gay or hetero, who feels other, going back to the foundation of the state, you know, blame Dev and, the fi and, and uh, his Fianna Fáil henchmen. But here's the thing, we, we built a state in 1922 and we created this um, uh, liberation myth, a founding myth, and it had no place for people, for people who challenged the norms at the time. The norms at the time were informed by a very rigid Roman Catholic morality. And it, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're gay or, or hetero, uh, if, you didn't, if you didn't fit that norm, it wasn't a nice society. So people left. People, I mean, gay and lesbian people left because of the laws, because we were criminal. Well, lesbians were criminal, but people left because um, it just was a hostile environment. And people continued leaving all during the 20th century. And I also think, you know, if anyone who feels other would have found it very difficult to live here up until, say, 15 or 20 years ago. Even what you said there about the foundation of the state, you know, you look like one of the greatest Irish patriots, Roger Casement, and they turned his back on him because of the Black Diaries. Yeah, well, you couldn't be, a, the, 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 the thinking was you couldn't be a Republican and, and gay or lesbian, you know, even though eventually his diaries were, and also, too, because his diaries challenged the notion of people being exuberant in their sexuality. I mean, he's talking about copying, in his diaries, about copying off and all of his interpersonal relationships, both emotional and sexual, and that was just a bridge too far for lots of Republicans. And I think he's only very recently being embraced. Very thoroughly. recently. Yeah. Very yeah. recently. And... and, and only because of people very loudly shouting and going, hold on a second, Roger Casement was a bit of a legend. Oh, totally. Like, are you familiar with how much of a legend Roger Casement was? You know who Roger Casement is, yeah? He was one of the leaders in 1916. And the thing with Casement is that he was... Was Casement Protestant? I think he uh, was yes, Protestant. Yes, he was. He, he was, was from, from Antrim, was our country down. Pro Protestant, but he would have uh, subscribed to, we'd say, wolf-tone-type republicanism, which is, it transcends sectarianism. It doesn't matter whether you're a Catholic or Protestant, you're, you're fucking Irish. 
and he was Sir Roger Casement. He was considered a legend amongst the Brits. Roger Casement is the father of modern human rights. He went to the Congo in the late, around 1890, or no, about 1910, and exposed a bunch of human rights abuses that the Belgians were doing in the Congo. And it was the first time that someone had really done that in the world, that someone from a Western country had stood up and said, hold on a second, have you seen what they're doing in Africa? Roger Casement started that, so he had huge standing in w amongst the Brits. And then he fell in with Padraig Pearce and them and used kind of his privilege as a knight to uh, help 1916 to happen. But then when, Roger Ca when the, the rest of the leaders of 1916 were put up for execution, there was an outcry for Casement to not be executed because he would have been at the time an international celebrity of sorts, you know. Uh, Casement would have been um, a figure of note. So a lot of famous actors and writers come out and said, you can't execute Casement. So the Brits brought out what were called the Black Casement Diaries. They turned out to be real, but it, all it was really was just I I Casement writing about his affairs with lads. That's all it was. Oh, being a total sleazebag, actually. But it was meant for just private consumption. I mean, that's yeah, it was thing. just for him. It was his text messages, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. But, like, <laughs> but, but when this came out, when the Black Diaries came out, the public support around the world for Casement's execution ended because they're like, oh, fuck, he's gay. Everyone backed off. You know, and he's been written out of Irish history as such. You know, his role in 1916, he's up there with Pierce, if not higher. But can and I also just add to that, blind boy? Like um, uh, nurse uh, Dr. Kathleen Lynn, who set up uh, Ireland's first children's hospital in 1919. She was second in command in 1916 yes. when Conley uh, was injured in City Hall in Dublin. Uh, she, as a result of both her gender and her sexuality. She was a woman and she was a lesbian and she was just written out of what we call the foundation myths of, of the Irish state in 1922. Not unlike Elizabeth Farrell, Nurse Elizabeth Farrell, who's, who was in the original photograph with Porrick Pierce, who also happened to be a woman and a lesbian and it just, it was, it, her sexuality and her gender was inconvenient for the mythology that was created in the 1920s and 30s. So they literally airbrushed her out of the official photographs at the time. And it's only... They didn't, I, their folks. I, they weren't doing the airbrush and the photograph stuff, were they? Well, well, thankfully, there are some original photographs survived. But here's the best thing. It took us 100 years for the state to finally issue, uh, on post issued a, 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 a stamp in honour of Kath Dr. Kath Kathleen Lynn and Elizabeth O'Farrell during the uh, 2016 uh, um, celebrations. And it seems that we're finally, not unlike all the conversations that have been happening around repeal, we're finally having a grown-up conversation about the type of society we have inherited and the unfinished business of building a socialist republic and also um, accommodating and acknowledging some of our heroes and some of our founding brothers and sisters from 100 years ago. There's a lot of unfinished business, but I'm, I'm really happy to see that we're having these conversations finally. Can you tell me a bit about the Irish Queer Archives? You, which well, that's, right, that's, that's actually a very important part of that process. So the Irish Queer Archive goes back to the 1970s in the main, where people, both activists and organizations, started collecting stuff. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. And then in the um, mid-1990s, I approached a civil rights organization in Dublin that was looking after it, and I said, listen, all this stuff is in black plastic bags. We need to do something with it. So long story short, got together a bunch of... Um, uh, yeah, what's in there? Like, what, What's in the Irish Queer Archives? Um, a quarter of a million press clippings covering every mention of homosexuality and lesbianism published in any Irish newspaper north or south of the border 
uh, in national newspapers, consumer magazines and provincial newspapers, photographs, badges, buttons, uh, private papers, journals going back to the 1950s, uh, 30 lesbian gay periodicals published on the island of Ireland that haven't even been digitized yet, about 700 international magazines, the earliest is a US magazine called One from the 1950s, and there's a load of uh, social history, what's what I call ephemera, that's actually out in storage in Santry in Dublin because the, the National Gallery, the National Library is, just doesn't have the resources to actually uh, catalogue it. Are you, getting the, uh, are you happy with the support you're getting from the state? Going, <laughs> this is fucking important. Should I answer that question in public? Yeah, it's on the podcast, man. It's not RT. You can uh, say what you um, want. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what uh, are you doing? <laughs> no, no, uh, no. Of course, I'm, no, of course, I'm not. But here's the thing: um, when when the National Museum of Ireland moved to Collins Barracks in Dublin, they hoovered up what available money was uh, was there for our national cultural institutions. And the other thing is, I think even though we we sent all this stuff, so I've curated this material for the last. I don't work for the National Library. I curated it for the last ten years, twenty years independently. So I go around the corner, the country, asking people to to donate stuff or whatever. I see stuff that's interesting. Peel stickers off, lampposts, whatever. Um, pick up theses, reports, and everything else, social history. Um, when we handed it over 10 years ago, Colm Tobin, our celebrated writer, made a very important point. He said, regardless of your sexuality, regardless of your gender, you cannot write a history of modern 20th century Ireland without accessing the Irish Queer Archive. All our histories are reflected in it because it actually is about change and it's about how we embrace, how mainstream Ireland embraced the concerns and fears and anxieties of its, minor of its sexual minorities. But um, there's, there, there are some moves afoot to basically get the National, the National Library to pony up some cash and do something with it. Uh, and hopefully that will happen. Here's the other thing too, is like post-marriage ref, post-decriminalization. Decriminalization happened 25 years ago. It's been all over the news. Can you, yeah, can you tell us about that now? Because me, me as, as, as even at my age, like I cannot fathom the fact okay. that being gay was illegal. Well, here's the thing. And you, like, you remember up, it. I don't know uh, do you remember up it. To, yeah. Up to 25 years ago, up to 25 years ago, um, two men having intercourse would get, would get 10 years in prison. Two men holding hands or kissing in public or in private, would get two years in prison, which is what sent Oscar Wilde to jail and broke him at the age of 47. Uh, now, was it, it this enforced in the 50s, 60s? Um, or? It was, it, Leo Varadkar, when he was doing the, um, the formal apology in the door, which I was there for, um, actually talked about the corrosive effect of, of the law, because up until he was born, he quoted the fact that he was born in 1979, and in the five years before he was nine, nearly, uh, sorry, in the 10 years before he was nine, between 1969 and 1979, 470-odd men were sent to prison. The Labour Party did a, a commission on Port Leash Prison in the 1957, and they found that a third of, the a third of inmates in Port Leash Prison in 1957 were in there for consensual sexual offences under this dodgy British uh, legislation. It was a British legislation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the 1861 could offense... They, we not have just kept the railroads and then given them that big bank. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing we, we, rarely, we rarely think about is the, the corrosive effect of the law. It's not just about how many men went to prison every year. Like, um, when I came out in 1979, six men went to prison that year for consensual sexual offences. Not only were their lives ruined, their family lives were ruined. In some cases, they lost their jobs. It had a corrosive effect on a whole load of people. And that's why the government apology was about acknowledging not just the hurt and distress 
that was caused to men who were imprisoned, but also the shame and stigma um, that was a cause to their families. The shame and stigma of their homosexuality, but also the fact that they were imprisoned. But we, we rarely, up until recently, we rarely talk about the impact on, the invisible impact on lesbians, uh, and, and also any, and bisexuals, and right throughout the 20th century, we know that thousands of people left this country to go to more socially liberal places like Amsterdam or San Francisco or New York or Berlin or whatever, because they simply, there was no place for them here. And what the effect of the law was to create this cloud of criminality that basically oppressed Irish society up until 1993. And how it, that played out was it stopped Irish society from basically embracing our, our reality and just embracing our existence. And to give you an example of, of how this worked, I was my first journalist job for Out Magazine, Ireland's first gay magazine. I'm in my mid-twenties. My first job is interviewing Mary McAleese. I didn't even get a fucking byline. I was really pissed off with that. Two pages and they didn't put my name on it. But anyway... Um, uh, but here's the thing, we, we put a radio ad, and Elle McCafferty was one of our journalists. This is 1987, we ran a radio ad in RTE, and RTE said, we're not running the radio ad because the word gay is in it. We said, okay, we'll take the word gay out. They just said, we're not running the ad. And they said, okay, what's the story here? And they said, and we have the letter that they wrote to us, it's in the National Library, in the Irish Square Archive. They said, here's the thing, if we run this radio ad, which is a very simple radio ad that says, Out Magazine, Ireland's first gay newspaper magazine, available in all alternative bookshops, Nell McCafferty, blah, 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 contributor, blah, blah, blah. They said, if we run this ad, it will be seen to encouraging criminal activity. Fucking hell. And that was the get-out. So people used the law as a get-out clause to basically not embrace us. And also to legitimise people's violence, to legitimise people's bigotry, to legitimise people's hate. So it plays out like that. So I think sometimes when we think about these horrible, nasty Victorian legislation and the impact that they have, it's not just about how many men went to prison, too many men went to prison, had their lives ruined, and their extended families, but it was just the existence of the law so comprehensively criminalized all forms of homosexuality and any engagement with homosexuality. That just people didn't want to know. And you see, when decriminalization happened in 1993, the first thing that you see happen... Decriminalization happened in 1993. Yeah. So up until 1993, if I was walking down the streets of Clonmel holding hands with Will, we could have got two years in prison for just holding hands. Fucking hell. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I deserve to be more angry than I actually am, but anyway, I've let it pass. That's one of the reasons I left this country, because in 1993... I left, you know, right after college, I was like, I am out of here, gone. To, well, it's to, like to this country is going to take away the best years of my life. <coughs> well, I had a great time in London, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned Nell McCafferty there. Did you, did you know Nell? Yeah, I was, I was doing a talk for Republican Youth in Derry last February, and I texted Nell to say that I was... Is speaking in the in the gas house, and she said, "You have to go down and see my house in the bogside. It's a really authentic house in the bogside." And she just gave me a fucking long list of everybody, including including Seamus Heaney's house, that I had to go and see. I thought, "You're creating a little fucking mini tour for me. I'm supposed to be here just talking, you know, and getting a little selfie with Jer Jerry Adams." Um, and she was actually quite emotional about it as well. Um, yeah, I actually think here's the thing. Oh, sorry for saying this now, because you know I love you, but Nell is a fabulous woman. She is one of the I our icons of feminism, and she also happens to be lesbian. And 
Irish society did not do good by her and did not do good by her generation. Yeah. And we have a lot of catching up to do and we really have to own our, our collective hurt and the damage we did to that generation and, and generations before them. Mm -hmm. um, <coughs> did, did you, uh, do you know that story about Nell and uh, women not being able to order pints and then she had this genius protest idea? Do you know about that? So Nell McCafferty and a bunch of other uh, feminists, in Ireland, right, it's, it wasn't illegal to serve a woman a pint. It just, it wasn't done. It was seen as completely unwomanly. So if a woman went to a bar and was like, can I have a pint? The barman would either go, no, or you can have two halves. <laughs> Seriously. So Nell, in like, I think it was the mid-80s or early 90s, went on like a bar tour with a bunch of feminists and what they would do is they would all go to the bar and order a round of shots, right? So they'd all get a round of shots, do the shots, then order pints. And the barman would go, I can't give you pints. But they figured out, in Irish law, if you get an incomplete order, you don't have to pay for it. So they were going around <laughs> to these pubs going, I'll take the fucking shots. If you won't give me the pint, grand, I'm not paying for the fucking shots. <laughs> and, At, 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 at least she got at least she got the drinks because I remember being in a bar in Dame Street in Dublin in 1981. I was 20 with my first boyfriend from Coolock, and uh, we were in in the middle of our first drink. And the manager came over and says, "You guys out! I don't want your sort of people in here." And it's like how travellers feel when they're fucked out of a place. And in the app, there was simply no anti... Well, first of all, we, we were criminals. But there was zero anti-discrimination legislation in place. The Equal Status Act, you know, was still a glimmer. It didn't come in until 2000. Um, so bar people could legitimise their bigotry like that. You know, it was quite extraordinary. Um, and, it, and it is of a piece. What I'm describing is of a piece of what you're describing with Nell. It's all interconnected. It really is. And a lot of it is around gender. That's the funny thing. Uh, and Ireland at that time as well, you're, you're describing Ireland that was in the fucking EU. So were we exceptional as an EU country to have these, this type of shit going on? We were the only country, we were the only country in the EU to have laws that were as regressive as the Soviet Union. I mean, David Norris took 11 years with Mary Robinson as a senior counsel to actually go through all of the court system and then to the European Court of Human Rights and I said to him, actually, I remember just before they, the European Court of Human Rights in 1988 gave mm -hmm. him his decision, I said, what are you going to do if you win, lose? He says, I'm going to go over to fucking uh, Strasbourg and I'm going to throw a fucking breath through the courthouse. <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, of course, he won his case. And actually, I have a really funny story to share with you because the day he won his case, David, Mary Robinson and I, who was uh, in awe of, I was 28 at the time, we went for a celebratory lunch to the door of the restaurant and we had a, like a battered fish and chips and mushy peas with a glass of white wine uh, and then wrote a little press release. Um, but here's the thing, the government dragged their feet for another fucking five years before changing the laws. They were uh, just who were they afraid of upsetting? Catholic Ireland. Yeah. yeah. The spirit of De Valera. Yeah. Well, there were some Fianna Gael people who were against it too. Fianna Gael, like, yeah, what parties yeah. were the ones that were bolstering this, this law? 
Well, it was a lot for Fianna Fáil, but like, you know, I was looking back at it because the, the, the apology was out, you know, last week, they were talking about that. But I was looking back at the speeches on the RT archives, at the speeches that were made on the Dáil the night that, that they uh, passed the legislation. And um, yeah, there were lots of, there was Fianna Gael people in, in there as well saying, now I'm going to quote the person, I'm going to badly quote them. He's like, what's next? Are we going to see now the acceptability of these, seeing these people homosexuals holding hands in public, kissing, was like, that's not going to be acceptable. I mean, Says that's fucking who? Uh, I, I, I'd have to find out the guy's name before I quote him. I have Jesus to remember. Christ. But it was the Fina Gale. I mean, actually, I tweeted at Leo the, um, the quote because I wanted to kind of piss See what Leo would say. Oh, there, yeah. well, listen, there was that, Bre- there was that Fina Gale uh, councillor, our, our TG from Loud, Brendan right. McGahan, who described gay, ma- gay homosexuals as sheep shaggers in 1987. And here's the thing, because Will, of course, is all about sexual health advocacy. Um, I mean, he's the icon of sexual health advocacy. Here's the thing, you know, you've got these people who are like marginalizing, criminalizing people, and then that makes it even more difficult to have grown-up conversations around how we deal with sexual health, how we deal with the AIDS crisis or whatever, all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, because Will, you're uh, a street artist, yes. but you're also an activist. Yes. You changed yourself to the doll or something for marriage equality, didn't you? Uh, it was for the, the Civil Partnership Bill just before... Can you tell us about that? Uh, just before the Civil Partnership Bill was about to be passed, that was in uh, 2009 or 2010. Uh, we've been doing a lot of campaigning on that. I mean, I've been campaigning on marriage equality since about 2007. So, you know, 2015 it passed, but that's a long time to be there. But uh, we, we, we absolutely flatly rejected the civil partnership bill because it was half measure. And um, there was lots of groups at the time, and like they're, they're pink washed out of history now. I noticed that in the sort of marriage equality movement. But there are groups out there like LGBT Noise who brought thousands of people together on the street. Um, but we were kind of a splinter group, myself and Lisa Connell. Uh, set up this uh, direct action group because I have a background with Greenpeace. I was with yeah. Greenpeace for five years, so I'm not afraid of, I don't know, frontline nonviolence uh, activism. And I said, right, you know what I'm going to do? The day that they go to pass it, we're just going to chain ourselves to the doll. In fact, you know what? There's a good plinth. Let's. I'll, I'll climb up in the gates of the doll, and you chain yourself to the to the gates, and I, I climb up on top. So I dressed up as a builder and um, walked over to the gates of the door. That was for, for subterfuge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Lisa was chaining herself to the gates of the door, and she could hear the guards saying, what's that builder doing? <laughs> what's he, what's he, there's no building work going on. Builder's having he, a bit of a tough what's day. He what's he doing? And it took off. <laughs> yeah. And it took off the tabard and the hard hat. And um, yeah, and I held up a pride, a pride flag that said marriage rights are equal rights and I stayed up there for about two and a half hours. But the police were good about it, to be honest you with you. You had a lovely story. You told me a story before <laughs> about a particularly sound guard that day. Yeah, he was, he was really nice because he was saying, he was, he was an older guard and he obviously wanted to kind of bring the situation to an end. And he was like, he was looking, he goes, he, lear- he learned my name obviously from the people down there. And he's like, William, 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 <laughs> would you not come down? Come on. <laughs> and I was going, no. No, it's a protest, <laughs> man. It's a protest. No, I'm not coming protest, down. I'm not doing it for the last. Like, <laughs> I'm not bored. But, uh, you know, it's weird about Ireland because, uh, you know, I, uh, these things are like, you know, with direct action like this, I mean, you're making a point, so maybe it's more direct comms. But, uh, you know, Buzz O'Neill was our sort of a guy on the day who was negotiating with the guards. And the the Buzz, the gas cunt. Uh, 
Yeah, he is. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so he was uh, on the phone to me. He's like, so he goes, we got loads of TV, got loads of papers, whatever. And I said, yeah, okay, well, it's time to come down now. And I said, tell the cops if they bring the ladder over a half one, I'll come down. <laughs> so I came down and we got arrested and whatever. Went, brought me to the police station, whatever. I'm yawn. I'm used to that kind of stuff, you know. Guilty people always sleep in cells, by the way, because they just don't care, you know. Innocent people will pace around, you know. The guilty will always go asleep. So I went asleep. And, um... <laughs> And uh, the, the guard who was arresting me, really nice guy, but later on that night, I went to Panty Bar and um, got a kiss off Panty for that. But there was a girl came up to me in the bar and she's like, she goes, I saw you in TV today. And I was like, oh yeah, it was cool, that was great. And she goes, and that was my brother Lorcan who arrested you. <laughs> she's a lesbian, like it was like her brother was a cop who arrested me, you know. This, city, this country is too small, which in a sense brings us to the whole point that we're, we, we are like, we're more connected with people than we think, you know, when you talk about people um, or otherness, whatever, you're actually probably talking about somebody who's actually in the room with you at the time. So if you're talking about, I don't know, something like that I'm passionate about, say, like uh, sexual health and whatever, yeah. you know, and you're mentioning something at work, a kitchen, you know, about, I don't know, STIs or, or you know, people's sexuality or gender expression, you have to realize there's somebody around in earshot of you who that affects. Yeah. Uh, so we can't, yeah. we, can't, we, can't, we can't see each other as, 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 as separate um, islands. We're all it's connected. a community. It is, yeah. Can you tell us about ACT UP? So ACT UP is a um, AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power is a group uh, uh, that started in 1987 in response to the AIDS crisis in America. Um, our chapter, there's many chapters around the world, um, that kind of fell away towards the end of the 90s as, um, as the combination retrovirals came in and people didn't, uh, people who had access to retrovirals didn't die in the huge numbers they don't. So anybody today who is um, living with HIV, uh, who's on effective treatment, which means they're taking their antiretrovirals every day, not only are they going to live as long as anybody else and have uh, a perfectly normal life, but the, the medicine has got so good that uh, anybody who is living with HIV on effective treatment cannot pass on HIV sexually. It wow. is impossible. Not, yeah. And there's been a number of studies been doing. One of the studies, the most important one, the partner study in 2014, 888 couples, 58,000 acts, condoms acts of sex between a HIV positive partner and negative partner want one single transmission of HIV. Now, that piece of information there is going to be the most important piece of information you're going to learn about HIV because it... It, it helps to stigmatize them. It does, something it like does. That. It break, um, but the thing is, the problem we have with it is that it, it goes against the status quo, what we've learned in the past about it. And that's really important. So we need to, we need to think about that. But also... What's this, what, what is, um, what, what's HIV in Ireland today? What's it like, what, like these retrovirals are talking about? Yeah. For a HIV-positive person in Ireland, what is the access like for those drugs? Is it's it expensive? Does, do, do no, it's very good. It's 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 a. It's, it's treated like a chronic illness. So it's, it's treated like, like a, yeah, it's a okay, manageable condition good and uh, good access and good care. It's the care in Ireland is very very good, yeah. and so there's no reason why um, people shouldn't uh, uh, feel like they're being looked after. But society doesn't look after. The state looks after people medically, but we don't look after people who are living with HIV. Uh, in, in Compassionately, understanding, not destigmatizing. At not at all. Will, like will, 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 you, will you just talk to Blind Boy in the, in the crowd about, um, about the reality of 
prep, because here's the thing, I'm HV positive, and I take one pill every day, paid for by the state, which costs 43 euro per pill every day. And it allows me to have a normal life, and I will probably die of a heart attack or something. It's not without its problems. I mean, okay, there's you know, increased cholesterol and lots of other things. I'm in danger of getting what's called a camel hump, which I'll hopefully avoid. Um, and I feel for every day in the shower, I'm going, is it growing? <laughs> is it growing? Do I need surgery at this point? No, but seriously, um, I actually think we need to, have, we need to have, start having a conversation, which Will is, is leading with some of his peers in Dublin and Cork. We need to have a conversation about the access to PrEP, yes. which you, you'll explain, yes. because actually, we shouldn't have to get to a point where people are on uh, antiretroviral therapy. We shouldn't have the huge numbers of people who are coming HIV positive in this day and age. And the reason we don't is because, the reason we do is because we have a shy sexual health education uh, well, program in this Well, country. it just so happens. Yeah, that was I one of the questions from the internet. They want to know what you think about the current state. I was, like, and I'm talking 1999, I, I was taught sexual education by a priest. And it was basically just don't wank. That was it. <laughs> that was it. And he really neglected talking about any of the important stuff. Wow. Mine and, was if you, and if you have a wet dream, it means you slept with the devil in your sleep. Mine was in my, my sexual health education in 1978 was a sheepish teacher in the high school going with a sort of diagram, not a photograph. This is a vagina and this is a penis. Stay away from them both. And <laughs> We weren't even told what happened in between all of that. We were sort of allowed to make it up for ourselves or just watch some dogs doing it on the street or whatever. So uh, I actually brought some yolks with me tonight. Here's, I have a yolk in my pocket. But this is, the, this is PrEP. This is the, um, it's called pre-exposure prophylaxis. I take it every day. And it is a, um, I mean, it's based around antiretrovirals. It's based around the science of antiretrovirals. Th that is a HIV prophylactic. Yeah, that, no, that is a pre-exposure prophylactic. So uh, that is... What does that mean? That is, that is a drug you take before you have sex. So it, is, it's, it prevents you from getting HIV. Fucking This hell. pill. This pill costs me... Um, I get this online because you can buy it in the pharmacies with a prescription. You can only buy... You can only get it available since December. That's the gay male pill. That is, that is the gay male pill, yes. Well, listen, hold on a second now. Well, not it's gay not just male, no, about no, no, the gays. No, no. It's about yeah. sex work. It's yeah. about anybody who feels they might be exposed themselves to HIV. So it's about IV drug users, gay or hetero. It's about sex workers, gay or hetero. It's about gay men. It's about anyone who might who anyone who might consider that it, they would be exposed to HIV. That's what about so, uh, dr drug users and needers? Does it, th what about that? Or is it just sexual intercourse? There, it's, to be honest with you, all the studies that have been done on PrEP, because PrEP is fairly new in a sense from, to, from it was a, it was a, from 2012, it was uh, approved by the FDA in America, and it's been used in Europe for the last you know, five years. Are but they giving it to people in Africa? Um, no, because it's a, it's, this would be a, PrEP would be a pre-exposure prophylaxis. So okay. There they tend to, um, to focus on, uh, more on uh, testing, and, um, and condoms would still be one yeah. of the things they would do. But you know, that, that's still, you know, condoms have been there as a sort of a, a significant part of, of sexual health, but it, you have to understand, condom use, whether you like it or not, and people say, why don't people just use condoms? Condom use has been falling since the late 90s. And like, you know, I can say, you know, we can all say here, there have been times uh, that we have used condoms incorrectly or inconsistently, and we have to be honest about ourselves we do that. In my case, if that, if that happens, 
then I know I've got this to back me up, and that's the reason why. So this costs, um, th this costs me uh, 30 euro for a month supply. Now, that's from buying it um, online. Online. And it is the so what if you rock up to the pharmacist in Clamill? How much it, is that going to... It will cost me about 100, 100 euro for a month's supply. Fucking now, hell. the thing is, we are working at the moment to try and get uh, PrEP um, as part of the drug payment scheme uh, under the HSC. Could you get it on a medical card? No, you can't. You can't. They can't so, have, so sex can't workers, essentially, who would really, really need this... Anybody who's at risk from, 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 uh, from HIV should, be, should be have access to PrEP. Now, here's the thing. Why do we need it now? Well, Ireland is going through and has been for the last four years, and it's time to wake up a HIV crisis. There is a new diagnosis, a new report diagnosis in Ireland every 18 hours. That's 10 a week. That's 500 plus people a year. And we have been trying to wake this country up uh, about that crisis. The government don't want to talk about it. It took Simon Harris 575 days because I counted in office before he actually talked about HIV once. We have a leader in this country who culturally, medically and politically knows the importance of this, and I said, is mute about it. One speech in the la since he's been Taoiseach, um, and he's, they are dragging their feet about getting this drug approved and going through the process and um, ending HIV crisis in Ireland. So that's my rant. Um, fair play. <laughs> on on that subject, there will like. Leo Radiker's a gay man. Mm -hmm. how, like, something like that there. How do the, the gay community in Ireland feel about him? Well, he's evolving for a start. Yeah. He's a gay man who's evolving, okay? Um, um, I don't want to be cruel and say he's not yet woke, but he's, you know, he's a late 30s gay man who is evolving, and I am prepared to be a little bit generous to him, for only for so long. Both as a gay man and as, as a politico, uh, and see him sort of embrace the new realities we find ourselves in Ireland. I mean, it's shocking that Ireland only um, um, founded its first sexual health education strategy, sexual health education strategy in 2015. So the first time ever we've had a national sexual health education strategy. Not education no strategy, health strategy. Uh, sorry, se sexual health strategy. Yes, of course, and the education that follows from that. So it's no surprise we're still grappling to deal with teenage pregnancies. It's no surprise we're still dealing with rising levels of STIs, infections across the board, chlamydia, syphilis, whatever, whatever, whatever. And a lot of it is grounded in the fact that we have, we have been the inheritors of a culture again informed by a very rigid Roman Catholic moral, uh, morality and ide ideology around sex and sexual behavior and sexuality, where we, we, we've got to a stage where we are, sex is so covered with shame and transgression and in our cases criminality and everything. So actually the idea of maybe going for an SCI checkup is like, it should be as, it should be as ordinary as going for a fucking, um, to the dentist. And actually, you should go for an SCI checkup without a lot more, a lot less fear than going to the dentist. And still, we don't do that. I mean, I tried to last. The, last to, if I was to like, we'd say with the lads in Limerick, right? Mm -hmm. They're terrified of someone sticking a cotton bud down their cock. Okay, so can, <laughs> this is can, we, can I say this straight off? Okay? Do you know what I mean? This is there is there are myths that permeate through, and I heard them as well when I was in the schoolyards of of the uh, of the schools around Clamell, and the same myths around today that guys, if you go in and if you have an STI, that there's some kind of 
weird punishment um, like that. no but literally there is some <laughs> sort of like cocktail umbrella that they stick down that does not happen I've gone for plenty of STI tests. That does not happen. This is how it works these days. You go into your sexual health. Uh, you know, you can do it online. Like the thing is, you can. How would you do that? You piss on your keyboard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Water and electricity, my favourites. Um, now you buy the kits online now. So you know what? It's a sample of urine and maybe a swab. You can uh, send it away. Yeah, you send it away. So complete discretion. Absolutely. Because that's the other thing. Like the two, like. If it, talking to the lads in the pub, the yeah. two fears, like I said, yeah. someone's going to do the cotton bud down the fucking. It doesn't work. Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. And then the other fear is, I simply don't want to be there because people will see me there. Yeah, so I know. So those that's, are the two things: discretion that's the, and that's and the pain. cultural change. Well, we well listen, yeah. hold, hold on. We still have to hope that the infrastructure is in place. Like last Christmas, I was uh, I was uh, in in Clonmel, but I live here. But I was like I was hoping to spend uh, Christmas in Dublin. And I got a sort of a dodgy rash somewhere, and I phoned up the SCI clinic in South Tip General, Western Road, and uh, this is like about three or four days before Christmas Eve, and they said, uh, yeah, okay, uh, describe your symptoms, blah, 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 we're having a convo over the phone and everything, and she said, um, well, here's the deal, we've only got two and a half nurses, I said, two <laughs> and a half nurses? What did you do nurses? with the third one? What is that about? Two and a half nurses, and yeah, um, uh, the first appointment I can give you is late January, basically four fucking weeks away, and I'm going, nah. I could have a drippy cock by that stage, or something yeah. even worse. Okay, that's not going to help at all. I thought so. The SCI clinic in South Tip General in, on the Western Road in Clonmel is open for an afternoon, one afternoon a week on a Wednesday. Sorry, not fucking good enough. It's so what's the other option? You go to your GP and spend sixty quid. Yeah, if you have that, this is the That's thing. That's the we, thing. If you this have this, we need to talk about as well. If 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 barriers, if there, if if income is a barrier, if any of these barriers that are put in front of people in terms of the sexual health are going to have an impact on people's lives. So, you know, with prep, anybody who is who needs it should be should be on prep because if they're not, they're probably going to get a HIV and they're probably going to be on more expensive drugs and and also you know have this highly stigmatized disease you know, for the rest of their lives. Camel but hub. But <laughs> yeah, the camel hub. But the other thing as well, here's the thing. The government have been underfunding and cutting back on funding on sexual health around this country for years. And to give you an example, why from 2009? Because because you know what? This is one of these areas that people don't talk about. Because even your TD comes to your door, yeah. most people are going to be uncomfortable about, the, about that. Because right. then they'll go. I don't want my TD wanting to know why I'm asking about we, that specifically. We don't talk about sexual health, so therefore we're not going to fight for it. This yeah. time we did. And to give you an example... And to be visible about it is a brave move. Well, it is. I mean, you know, some... you know. No, it's not really. Look, here's the thing. If you're exuberant about your sexuality, gay or hetero, and you enjoy having sex, then you should be responsible enough towards yourself and your partner, whether it's your husband or your wife or your lover or, the, or a string of, of one-time affairs or whatever, whoever you're boning... At the end of the day, you know, it's about, being, it's about having respect for yourself and respect to the other person that you're having sex with. And if you're going to do that on a regular basis outside of a monogamous relationship, then you go and get checked. That's it's it. very simple. It's, it's simple. very fucking simple. I tell you what, there is a, there is a thing to be said here. Um, back in 1993, when I left this country, and it was still, it was just after criminalization, whatever. But it meant nothing to me because I stayed in the closet and I didn't want anybody to know I was gay, whatever. So I went to London as an immigrant, okay? So I went to London as an Irish immigrant, not knowing 
a single gay person, what gay sex was like, nothing like that. Luckily, because I had one teacher in 1987, Mr. Crowley up in the tech, who gave us a 45-minute uh, talk about HIV, how you, couldn't get, how you could get it and how you could not get it, that stood Was that me. off his own back or was Yeah, he it was. He heard somebody made a joke wow. about AIDS in the class. And he wow. said, right, we're not doing science today. We're going to do a different type of science. We're going to talk about H HIV. We're going to talk about AIDS. Um, you know, cause and that was him called. doing his duty for there's yeah, a bunch was. of young people and here. They're not hearing it anyone else. I'm going to do something right. good here. And you know what? We were, we were all ears because he of was course. talking about everything that we wanted to know about it, including vaginas and... and bums and, and everything <laughs> you know we were like you know when you're 15 you're like oh right okay we're gonna yeah. have a conversation about that yeah and um my, do you know those those questions uh, this is not me asking but somebody else of said course this yeah, one time. yeah but um that stood to me because i mean it stood to me in the sense that i i had a good maybe a good understanding of it however because i was still the immigrant in london i didn't know about any of the other diseases and i didn't know that it's important to get checked in and then so I went for 10 years without getting tested once. Holy fuck. I didn't get tested until I came back to Ireland 10 years ago. Uh, sorry, 10 years later. And so it isn't, a, it isn't a sort of a sub story for me, but what it tells me is that when we talk about people who are not from this country, immigrants who are coming here, people who are living here, we've got to ask ourselves the same question. How are they accessing services? Are we speaking to them the right languages? Are we engaging with them in, uh, culturally correctly as well? So whenever I think about sexual health and how we reach people, we have to, I have to think to myself, I want to think about the immigrant me, that person. Yeah. Who is the person we're not reaching? 10% of our population, 11% of our population. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, usually with this shit, it's those are the people who are most affected and poor people. Do you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's like you said there, I mean a four month or, or sorry a, a four week waiting list to get a, a check and then you say there's 18 uh, someone diagnosed every 18 hours with HIV there has to be a causal relationship between those two things and also as well from the funding side and I'll say this we looked into we got loads of parliamentary questions done on, on, on a TDs did them for us, asking the HSE about funding, and we found that the, 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 the major um, uh, gay men's health service that's in Dublin has been going for 25 years. Um, since 2009, their funding has been cut in half, okay? Mm -hmm. In that same time, numbers of new diagnoses of, of, of HIV from gay and bisexual men doubled. Mm -hmm. And that is a part of the correlation between there. Now, if the government had recognized back in 2013 and 14, when they saw a trend in HIV numbers going up, they could have brought in a PrEP trial and they could have nipped in the bud. But they dragged their feet, and that's why we're in the situation we are today, where 500 plus people every year are getting diagnosed and we don't hear a peep from them. When's the last time, and I'm going to ask you seriously this question, when's the last time you saw a woman on TV, talk publicly about her HIV diagnosis. An Irish woman, a woman who lives in Ireland. Never. I, yeah. Yeah. Right. That's the question you've got to ask yourself. And if you don't ask yourself that question, then you don't know the whole story. We don't know the whole story. Hey, How will, many will, will that's, in a way, the culture you're describing is also not that un removed from 30 years ago, where when the first cases of full-blown AIDS were diagnosed in 19, um, the early mid-80s, the first cases were notified of seven cases uh, uh, of HIV, five had already died of full-blown AIDS. The government took five years to have a conversation in the door of Shannon. 
As long as it took Ronald Reagan to have, and he, at a time, he actually barred known AIDS people, um, known homosexuals from actually entering the United States. We had a protest uh, uh, outside the American Embassy about it. But, uh, you know, in some ways it's sort of, I'm, I'm telling you that story because it's emblematic of a sort of a cultural and political mindset. And I just think there's, there's some of our political masters really need to get up to speed with the reality of where we find ourselves. Because I think it's completely different from all of us here tonight. I think our society has very changed values. Our society is actually a lot more engaged with the reality of where we find ourselves. We're finally having grown-up conversations as a result of marriage equality and repeal. We're having grown-up conversations around notions of how we, how we negotiate desire and intimacy, how that plays out in the Me Too movement, how that plays out in rape and sexual assault, how that plays out in sexual health, all of that. I mean, I'm positive on one level, you know, Listening to Will, part of me just wants to hang my head in shame and go, has nothing fucking changed in 30 years? Yeah, but Tony, you have to understand that uh, a month ago I was looking through the archive and I found a picture of you, Kieran Rose, Mick Quinlan and a couple of other people who in 1985 set up the first response to the AIDS crisis in Ireland, it was called Gay Health Action. And in 1985, when it was illegal for anyone who wasn't, didn't have a prescription. You have to have a prescription from the doctor to buy condoms in a, in a chemist, right, in 1985, up to 1985. And in 1985, this group that Tony was part of were importing uh, condoms from the Netherlands and distributing them illegally to people who were treated like criminals. We, we actually had a but condom. they saved lives. We actually had a condom picket, blind boy, you'd love this, on 87 for gay pride. There weren't enough people to have a parade. Everyone was burnt out. So we thought, well, the high point of, of Pride Week will be a kiss-in outside the door where loads of same-sex couples will just kiss. It's illegal. Hope to be there to be arrested. And just to show how stupid and fucking... Uh, um, ridiculously the, the, the laws were but then later on the week we had a condom picket outside the Vatican Embassy on the Navarin Road in Dublin and basically we got four of us got a load of condoms illegal and blew them up and made a necklace of them and draped them around the entrance <laughs> yes. to the Vatican Embassy <laughs> like a big rosary beads because 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 at the time the church was saying Condoms prevent life. It's better to allow people die of AIDS than let people use condoms because it prevents life. And that's why we have 30 million children have been orphaned in sub-Saharan Africa because the church's attitude has informed, has informed societal attitudes around condom use. And, and while our brothers were, and sisters were dying of AIDS in Ireland in the mid and late 80s, the church was saying, no, we will not allow condoms. And that was informing the government's attitude. Anyway, we blew them up and then we had a couple of placards. The one I'm most proud of is like, protect yourself from the church. Wear a condom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How are you feeling about the Pope coming to Ireland? I mean, um, I don't like. I don't give too much of a shit, but like, I mean, it, 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 like this is the stuff that there should. There, will there be protests from the, the LGBT community reminding the Pope of what he fucking stands for and shit like that? Yeah, and there are. There are. I mean, I, there did, are did this yeah. particular Pope did he, did he change his opinion on the Africa condom thing, or is that still going? No, that's that. The, the, they, they change a position on that, but it's it's too late. I mean, it's too late about everything. It's too late. There's people dead. Like it's too late yeah. about everything. I mean, they're 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 only doing catch up now, only because they've been dragged, you know, yeah. kicking, screaming into another into another century. So they're irrelevant. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's let's Mary McAleese let's for Pope. I want Mary McAleese for Pope. Okay. 
And we really, we really need an alternative pope, and if there's going to be one, it has to be Mary Macaulay. <laughs> to be honest, we've we got to go past all, all religions in that sense. Ireland should be uh, a secular state where people, regardless of what you believe in... I mean, I'm an atheist, and my whole approach to it is, like, I honestly will, will fight for a right for a person to believe in anything they want to. If they believe there are, there are flying toads uh, behind Mars... My cousin I, Nick believes that. Yeah, <laughs> but if, if they believe that, and that's a belief they have, I'll, I'll, and, and they want to say that and think that, absolutely, I will defend them for it. But they can't go and start changing laws because of that belief. So yeah, I don't think religion doesn't have any place in a pluralist and modern society. It has no By the way, place. can I say... Yeah. Um, by the way, my, my thing really is just, I mean, uh, like, because I, 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 I take the piss out of fucking Catholicism a lot because, I, like, I was raised in the c- Catholic system in school against my will because I would not have been able to go to school if I wasn't baptised, which is, they only, they sorted that one out a couple of months ago, actually. They brought in something in the government that, um, from now on, y- you can't discriminate on whether a child is baptised or not, which is brilliant because... It's one of those things, it's a real Dublin uh, divide. When we were complaining online about, you know, if you don't want to be baptised, you, you don't have a choice down south, Dublin people were going, would you not just send them to a multi-denominational school? It's like, not in Limerick. <laughs> but there's what, like, it, it, when I was growing up, it was, I would have had to go to the fee-paying Protestant school. My dad was a communist, like, so he was not into fucking uh, Catholicism or anything, but I had to be baptised, and my brothers and sisters as well, because I wouldn't have gotten to school, you know? And... I would have grown up near the end of it, but they still did fucking weird shit to me. Like they, I remember once, uh, now one of my, now we were seven years, actually this is, we were seven years of age and we had a free class. <coughs> and one of the lads in the class decided it would be a good idea, idea to stick his willy into a girl's ear, right? <coughs> and it was all a lot of fun and we were seven years of age, but the nuns found out, dragged us up to the office. And what they did was they got jam jars of clean water and they got dirt out of a pot and started shoving the dirt into these clean jam jars and pointing at the dirty jam jars saying that's your soul now <laughs> and you're not allowed to have a confession till next year and I always it, it fucked me up because I got nightmares over it but now as an adult here's the thing that I look back on and I only realise this as an adult the young fella who stuck his dick into the girl's ear right now that's all a bit of crack or whatever he was seven and he came from a fucking fairly disadvantaged background if a seven-year-old is doing anything with his dick to another person, that's a red flag for him and abuse at home. Yeah. And the nuns didn't spot it. Yeah. Instead, they went down the sin route. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know, in psychology, they know that if, if a young kid is doing something sexual, yeah. someone showed it to him, that's a red flag. Yeah. They didn't spot it. Yeah. Instead, they took out some jam jars and then told us, the jam jars are dirty, but however, in a year's time, you get to go into a vertical coffin and you get to say your secrets to a stranger and then magic will absolve them and you'll have a clean jam jar again. <laughs> Do you know what? Here, this is the I, 90s. I, I, I don't want to diminish anyone's belief, uh, Christian beliefs or Muslim beliefs or anything, but you know, if, 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 if I had a choice between a guy who's flayed to death on a piece of wood and Bowen, our Irish uh, cow goddess, moon goddess who gave her name to Newgrange, I'd rather actually, she's got a much sexier backstory. I'll go with her any day, okay? Well, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, like Will said, you know, it comes down to choice, but we do need to. I think, I'm, I'm, I'm forever an optimist, and I actually, I sense something. There's been a transformative, something transformative in Irish society in the last few years. And I just feel, 
we're, we're, we're doing catch up with our brothers and sisters on mainland Europe. You know, because they actually, after the trauma of the Second World War, the Netherlands and Germany and France and everything else in Denmark, they rebuilt themselves. They not just rebuilt themselves structurally uh, and economically, they re rebuilt themselves socially and culturally. But I actually feel we, as a result of our post-colonialism, as a result of our dirt, poor poverty, and a whole lot of other things, all of that was delayed. And we're really only now, since the 1990s, since the beginning of the septic tiger, I mean, I fucking hate that period, but anyway, <laughs> but since the beginning of the septic tiger, more or less, the mid-90s, there's been, there's something happening in Irish society. And I just feel there's a conversation, and we're aware, even if we're not all individually a part of that conversation, we're aware of what's going on. We're aware of it, and we want to be, and we've signaled that we want to be part of it. When you see something like, like marriage equality, you know, somewhere during the campaign, it stopped about being a question about letting the gays get married. It started to be a question of like, what fucking type of society do you want to grow older in? What type of social justice do we want? What type of cultural fairness do we want? What type of society do you want for our grandchildren to grow older in? And uh, some of that played out in, 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 in the repeal uh, campaign as well. Mm -hmm. It was like, I just bawled my eyes out seeing some of the videos of people, mainly women, but not exclusively women, coming home to vote. And I thought, there is something utterly transformative about this process. And we need to, all of us who want to build a new socialist republic in this country, we need to get on board and try and harness all of this energy and all of this mindfulness that's going on at the moment and turn it into something that's of real purpose for us and not let the political parties hijack it because that's well, a, yeah, you, you know what? a fear I, mean, I have yeah, no, absolutely. Well, the political parties the political party system is just a shortcut to power but there is a parallel power the feminist movement understood this the gay movement understood it there are parallel dynamics at play you know community organisations come them on the, the, um, the Irish Country Women's Association there's lots of community based organisations that are just as valid expressions of, of political power. They're just different and they're in parallel. And we, we should just clue into that. And we need to sort of find our voice individually and collectively, which is what we're doing in this bloody tent today in Clonmel. It's really That's important. That's one thing I wanted to fucking... One thing I'm after noticing when I'm here, like, imagine... Like, what would... It, if 30 years ago someone said to ye, as two young gay lads in Clonmel who mightn't have even been out, that... 30 years later, you'd be here in the Clanmel car park in a marquee openly talking about being gay, gay and gay rights and whatever to loads of Clanmel people. Is no, that not kind of class? I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have believed it back yeah. then. Uh, I w it wouldn't be... It would have been utterly shocking to me because the only thing that, that I grew up with, like growing up in here in Clanmel, uh, um, like nothing happened to me because I kept it so secret, like secret for myself. And I didn't, and I saw what happened to other kids who they could see it in, who they could see their, their sexual expressions or their What's that person. like? What's that like as a young lad, even not knowing it yourself, knowing it but not knowing oh, it? Oh, like. I knew it, but what is it like, but not admitting it to yourself is a big yeah. it's, It causes duplicity and it causes you to become uh, two people in a sense, and it, it causes cause a bit. And it causes mental health issues. And of it, course. And, it, and it for me, it caused. Uh, amongst other things, uh, self-harming and, uh, and and cutting my wrists and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, but um, uh, huge amounts of depression, and and I was just lucky that I I've, I've I had a good group of people, and also those people were involved in activism as well. And I think activism had is one of the things that saved me in a sense because um, 
back in the sort of uh, late 80s. Did you get stuck into activism in Ireland or did you have to Oh, no, here, here yeah. in Clamel. Like our, our first big campaign was to, for, to clean up the Shure. Does anybody remember what the Shure looked like in 1982, 83, 84? Burks. It was a cesspit. I mean, it, was, it, had, it had no, no primary screening of raw sewage whatsoever. So all of the, the factories and the right, we were on Bridge Street, right beside our house, right beside our house was a dog food plant and down around the corner was a pig arbitrary, uh, abattoir where yeah. they used to um, put pour blood was to go straight into the river and then right beside it was a raw sewage outlet pipe. And when the, when the especially in the summer when they would, water would go down, you would just see every single thing that went out of, out of toilet was caught up in all the shopping trolleys. It was one of the most discussed. So we started this campaign called Our Future. That man had to leave the room, it was so hard of him. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's gone off to get that trolley. Yes, he is. It's no it's good to you, there's only poons in there. Historical shit trolley, I need to get yeah. into the shore and get that <laughs> before any e-cunts go down there. So, um, yeah, so my first activism was um, with Earthwatch, who were here in Clamel. We uh, went down to um, went down to the river with jam jars and marigolds and filled them up, filled up the uh, jam jars with raw sewage, came out straight out of the raw sewage, and uh, did a march down to, down to the, city, down to the uh, town hall to a council meeting. Did they um, want to know when, about when it? When was this again? They, really? they, actually, they actually came out to us and they said, we're only going to allow two people into the meeting and you're not bringing the jars in. So, <laughs> so when, I, went when, in when, a, I went in as a 16-year-old and, and, and Bobby was the older guy, but we went down and sat down with them. What year? We, what year? Uh, this is 1988. And so I said to them, because we had all our info, I said, the last time you sat down and talked about water treatment in this, in this town was 1954. It's now 1988. Uh, we need to do something about it. They went off and got funding from the EU, and there is a plant built here. So now, again, so it was the EU going, you can't be doing that. Exactly. You're now. Hey, exactly. but here's the thing. There's still raw sewage being pumped into the River Shure. And it is the third largest river in the c country. It is a sacred river. Who was doing it? Is, it is amazing topography. But I was talking to some people, members of, of Tip County Council, and we were, we were having some indirect chats about something else. And I said, you know what? Where they're doing all of the new, the south level, the south uh, branch uh, opposite uh, off um, Lady Blessington's Weir, where they're doing all the kayaking and everything else. They put in the infrastructure for kayaking. I said, oh, this is great. We need some jetties where people can not just canoe, but there should be water facilities and safe places for, for people, but especially children, to swim. And uh, one of the uh, Tip County councillors said, not yet. I said, what do you mean not yet? This is last year. He said, well, there's still raw sewage being pumped into the river a bit upstream. I said, exactly where? And he wouldn't tell me. I'm going, I told you have a fucking treatment plant. This is fucking shocking in I'll this day and age. I'll right? get you a jam jar. We'll go out up there later on. Come <laughs> <laughs> um, Well, you know what? We, the, the, the whole... The whole, the, the, the whole theme and tag of, 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 of Clum and Junction Arts Festival this year is sure thing, where it's about repositioning our, our attitude, not just our vision and our view, but our cultural attitude and our, our socialization towards, back towards the river, which we just used as a sewer, as, 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 as Will just illustrated, and about sort of imagining how an old, heri a medieval heritage town like Clonmel 
that's in the gravitational pull of water, which, which is a difficult enough issue, how we can sort of reimagine our heritage, how we can imagine this amazing topography in South Tip where the, where the river bends eastwards and it creates an extraordinary, extraordinary landscape. And we have not got on top of it. There might be some people of you in the audience, but our administrators, the county council, the town, the, and people who run this town, the Ch Chamber of Commerce, are simply not on it. They're not on it. And I just feel it. it I just take my hats off to uh, the Junction Arts Festival for trying to, just for a moment, making us to reimagine the role that the river plays in our life here as a piece of recreation, as a piece of socialization. Sure Island should be an amazing community, an artist community. It should have a water mill, it should have had a hotel, it should have sheltered housing for old people, it should have art centre, it should have jetty ways, it should have cafes on the riverside and everything, and it's a fucking surface car park. Sorry, not good enough. <laughs> I love how passionate you are about a river. <laughs> I wasn't expecting and that, we haven't even I wasn't expecting we, river passion. We haven't, even, we haven't even started talking about otters and beavers, but anyway. <laughs> Come here, Will. You're going to do uh, a bit of public arting during the festival period down here, aren't you? Yeah, unscripted, completely unscripted. I was uh, at home today. I was clearing out some stuff. And um, I have this, um, this print that I did last year, 2016, but it goes back 10 years. But it is, um, <clears throat> it's kind of like a post-Celtic uh, tiger print. And it's, uh, it's Michael Collins with Chanel and Dior shopping bags. <laughs> um, <coughs> so it's called Duty Free State. I did a canvas of it back in 2007. And I made a print. And that print, the, the screen print is sold out. Uh, it was in a two color, but I found these today and these are um, when you're doing up screen prints You do a lot of uh, screens to get the inks right and register the colors and stuff like that So these these kind of <coughs> offset ones Just onto newsprint So I brought about 30 with them of them with me and I'm not handing them out because that's not my style And it's not uh, the fucking late late show. Yeah, exactly <laughs> You have to work for them and uh, so I do a lot of street art intervention I find street art intervention is a great way of I guess uh, breaking people's patterns and habits. You probably take the same route to work every morning. You probably take the, drink the same coffee and say hello to the same people and whatever. And breaking people out of their habits, I find, as an artist, is one of the best ways of motivating and educating people to, to think a little bit differently. And that's why you tend to put art in the street. But um, I'm going to put these in the streets tomorrow morning. So I've got some... Um, little glue dots I'm going to put on the back of them. But here's the thing. They're are only people free to take them? Or they're they they're stuck free on? to take them. Okay. They're free to take them. There's about 30 of them. So it's like the Late Late Show, but with orienteering. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, but the only thing is uh, I'm only putting them on buildings that are closed down or vacated because I've noticed... Because uh, otherwise you're going to the side of someone's fucking shop or house. Well, yeah. You know, it's unauthorized, but it's only glue dots. I mean, you know. There's too many closed down yeah, buildings. Yeah, I have noticed that from the time that I was a kid, you know, we just lived off O'Connell Street, so O'Connell Street was alive in the 80s. I mean, people didn't have a lot of money, but that was all the shops were open. Now you go down there, you see board up shops, you see board up uh, buildings, and including my old house that I used to live in is boarded up, has been boarded up for the last 20 years. So it kind of makes me sad to see it. So, um, I kind of want to put them on the vacated places so that you're only going to look for vacated places tomorrow to find this print. And I'm not signing it either, so good luck with trying to get authenticated when I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, 
I'm gonna. Uh, I didn't even. You're, you're such interesting cunts. I didn't even get to ask you the internet questions. So I'm gonna ask you one question from the internet, and then I'm gonna put a, a mic out into the audience. Um, one qu uh, question I got was, how do you feel about the corporate uptake of Pride? The way that re recently, this year in particular, we're just after coming out of Pride Month, corporations with their rainbow flags, but being very performative, not necessarily doing anything to help the community. Fantastic, the Tony. So I was one of the people who set up Pride in, uh, well, actually, Pride was set up in 1974. There were 10 brave people who walked from the British Embassy, because it was the site of the old British laws, for three kilometres into the Department of Justice and Stevens Green. David Norris was there and Jeff Dudgeon from Northern Ireland. They would both sue the Republic and Northern Ireland gov um, governments over the British legislation <coughs> and win. And they had some great placards, Lesbians in Love, and I love this one. This is 1974. Homosexuals are revolting. Yeah. I mean, how cool <laughs> is that? <laughs> anyway, and then, and then Pride kicked in in 1979, and I was involved in the first Pride Week, and there weren't enough people to, I was 19, to give out to do a march. So 16 of us wandered around Dublin, palming people with um, bemused shoppers with leaflets explaining the history of the Stonewall riots in New York, yada, 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 and explaining what was going on, and we were unveiling a pink triangle the, the symbol of uh, uh, gay internees from the death camp, from the Nazi death camps. This was a symbol that was used before the uh, rainbow flag. Is that flag. what the pink triangle is? Yeah, it, was the, it came the, from like the start of David basically the, the Nazi death camps had all this hierarchy of inmates. If you were an anarchist, you had uh, a black triangle. If you were a communist, you had a red triangle. If you were a Jew, you had a yellow triangle with another one on top, which made a star of David. If you had a pink triangle, you were the bottom of the pile. You were a homo. About 100,000 100, documented gay men were imprisoned under the uh, German penal code by Hitler. And here's a shocking thing. When the camps were uh, uh, liberated in 1945, the West German government, with the connivance of France, uh, America, the US, and, um, and Britain, put a loads of those men back into prison again, and it was only as a result of an international campaign of shaming the West German government that the, the, the surviving in inmates in 1991 were finally uh, given, um, had their, had their uh, crimes expunged and were actually given compensation. They were the last group of death camp internees, which tells you something about the lingering attitudes of shame and stigma around homosexuality. But here's the thing, pride. Um, so I have a long history with Pride that goes back to the 1980s and I've watched it being commercialised. Last week I got into loads of trouble because on social media I said, I am not having the fucking root. So the root, we have this huge corporate buy-in to Pride. Dublin City Council are tripping over themselves because they're just thinking pink euros. We can brand Dublin and Ireland on post-marriage ref. We can brand it as a gay, LGBT-friendly... Tourism. All of that. And I'm not against all of that. But as far as I'm concerned, if the, if the parade is shunted off the main streets of Dublin, which it has been for the last couple of years, it is the second biggest parade in Ireland after St. Patrick's Day Parade in Dublin. It has to be on the main streets of the, of the city, capital city because it is about visibility. Pride has always been about visibility. It's about basically LGBT people, us sharing our unique queer worldview with the rest of fucking Ireland. And it's also about having a party with the rest of Ireland. So if there's nobody, if we're shunted onto the back streets of Dublin, there's nobody spectating. So the rest of Dublin doesn't get to share in our party and our queer revolutionary joy. It makes a mockery of the whole thing. I'm not totally against the buy-in of the corporate sector, but it has to be 
modulated and has to be on our terms. And I'm reminded of something that Gilbert Baker, the guy who designed, he died last year, 67, had a heart attack, from San Fran. He designed the rainbow flag. And I said to him, we were out having dinner in, in uh, Dublin. I said, oh, you know, you remind me of Jim Fitzpatrick. Jim Fitzpatrick never patented his screen print of Che Guevara. And so now it's the global image of Che Guevara. Do you know, do you know the Che Guevara image? You know an Irishman yeah. made that, yeah? Black with the, red, with the red. And I said, why didn't you patent the rainbow flag back in 1977? You were using it for the Gay Freedom Day parade in San Fran, as it's called. And he said, I wanted it open access. I wanted it open source. Like I'm Jim going, Fitzpatrick. I'm going, yeah. yeah, fair enough. And then that led into a conversation about the embrace of the corporate sector. And he said, here's the thing. Like you being reserved, refused service in a bar in 1981 in Dublin, I was refused service in a bar in San Francisco in the late 70s. So when the corporate sector started to recognize me as a consumer, I think, well, that's one step along the road to acceptance and equality and liberation. But here's the thing. All of that process has to be modulated and choreographed and engaged with. And the idea, some corporate thinking that they can just fucking drape a, a double-decker bus with a couple of rainbow flags is not, well, it's not good design, but it's not a fucking corporate buy-in as far as I'm concerned. Performative. Yeah, it has to be something. It has to be something. I think, actually, if we, what Dublin Pride and all, all the other big pride parades around the country need, and because the pride parades are the visible tip of pride. When I hear people, and it's usually angsty, alt-right, lonely, angry, uh, middle, uh, early 30s uh, uh, heterosexual men going, why don't we have straight pride? And I'm going, well, you have straight pride every fucking day of the year. Yeah. Okay? And here's the thing. I'm not, I'm not actually dissing your involvement. What I want is, I want Dublin Pride and all the other prides, but we'll talk about Dublin because that's the one I've had the history with. I want Dublin Pride to be this big midsummer party with a big queer heart that the entire city embraces, that is good for tourism, that's good for business, it's good for everything, and it also sends out a gorgeous image of the city and of Ireland to the rest of the world. It's really important. People socializing, people having a party. Like the dad's bus from, from Dublin bus had a dad's bus, dad's for pride, and it was basically dads who have sons or daughters who are lesbian or gay or transgendered. Has anyone seen the video on YouTube? Yeah, no. It's amazing. Oh my God, I bawled crying. Yeah. I bawled crying. And I'm going, this is a bus company giving real expression to what we call social inclusion in the workplace, so what we call diversity and all that sort of stuff. And they basically organize a, dress, a bus, they dress it up, and they basically pick up all of their kids who are lesbian or gay or transgendered, and they videotape it, and it's Dublin Bus making an emphatic statement about how they are not just family, but they are part of Irish society, and they're embracing everybody, and they're also going to be part of this magic fabulousness that's our transformation of our society. And I'm going, this is how we go. But the corporate sector, I think, is going to become problematic. I well, saw that's better than just a rainbow ice cream. Well, I saw a group called Radical Queers Resist, and they're just going, no, sorry, we don't want the corporate sector buy-in. But my thing is, they're a reality, yeah. so we can't prevent it, but we absolutely have to, and I think we have to stick it up to Dublin City Council and Cork City Council and all the others and go, you want to do the parade and you want to fucking get the pink euros and everything else and market pride as a big sort of piece of cultural queer tourism and everything else, great, but it has to be on our terms. Otherwise, fuck off. Yeah, fair enough. We, uh, we, uh, we give out loads. Of, we, we use pride 
for our own advantage because we use it as a way of talking to the community about things that affect them. Now, you know, of course, HIV isn't exclusively, you know, an LGBT, uh, you know, disease or whatever, but we are disproportionately affected by yeah. it. And so we, give, we distributed about 5,000 PrEP Now stickers. And also it was the first time we marched this year and we had a debate about where we marched. We thought, if we're gonna march, we're gonna make a lot of noise. So, you know, it, the transition was, you know, it was like, um, Rainbow bus, rainbow bus, rainbow, lots of rainbow people, and everyone wait, you know, clapping, saying, oh, look, those cute people with their rainbows on. And then it's us. There's a black banner with act up, with loads of people in black shouting, you know, um, act up, fight back, prep now, you know? And they're like, oh. <laughs> I thought it was supposed to be crack. Here, here, here come the HIV angry people. There's a, one, one question I have, right, because you're talking there about pride and it being you know, having it a big load of crack and whatever, right? But mm. one thing recently, a conversation I've seen is about for straight people to be also inclusive in queer spaces, but also respectful of them, yeah. by which I mean, like, how do you feel about hen parties going to a gay bar? No, or cool. we'll say straight couples having affairs in gay bars and things like that. I don't think I'd notice the affairs, to be honest with you, but the hen parties is a no-no. Oh, but it was Panty, was, I was asking Panty, and she said uh, that's the two things she sees. It's, it's either hen parties or the other straight people she sees are couples having affairs. What if the other people that they were cheating on were having homosexual affairs? With the other yeah. <laughs> the, the, the only time I get upset about something like that is when the other person scores. Because I remember years ago, my sister Louise, who's, oh, she's away at the moment, so I can say this. Uh, anyway, so in, when she was doing her leaving search, she'd rock up from Clonmel, this is in the 80s, to Dublin, to the Hirschfeld Centre, this LGBT community centre that I was involved with, uh, which was torched uh, in 1987, and um, in the midst of loads of our brothers being murdered or whatever and beaten up. And um, almost every weekend she'd come up with her, her woman friend, her girlfriend, who, who um, Fiona, the boat Clonmel women, girls, 18, 17, 18, almost every weekend she's rocking up to a gay centre, she'd fucking score. And we'd go home to our granny's house in Rathgar and I'm going, how do you, ma I'm single, I was on my own then, and I'm looking at her with some bloke she's picked up and going, how do you manage that in a fucking gay club? So actually I'm all about sort of embracing uh, heterosexual people, but again... But the hen party thing. But the hen you, parties no, thing. No, that's parties not great, thing. no. Uh, by the way, we need to ban hen parties completely from Temple Bar. We need to up our game. And even Actually, someone asked me on Twitter, for, uh, ask Tony about how Temple Bar used to be. I don't know what that meant. Have you got uh, some type of knowledge of Temple Bar before the Temple pandemic? Bar in the 1980s was so derelict and so run down that the BBC used to come over and shoot it as a stand-in for World War II bombed London. <laughs> <laughs> for real. My, uh, my sister's getting married tomorrow, and uh, I, she came up, she said, she asked me would I be organized the hand party. I said, yeah, no problem, whatever. So they came up to Dublin, and I organized loads of stuff, whatever. And I said, look, we're not doing this whole tacky thing, you know, wearing like... Willy straws. Yeah, and all that. We're, we're not doing it. We're not doing it. We're not doing it. And I was like, and she's like, fine, fine, no problem. And she, all her friends came over. Take all them the, to the wax all, museum, all, man. All the cousins came <laughs> from Clare. Um, so the wedding's on tomorrow. So anyway... They came up to them, took them to a nice restaurant, whatever, we had a drink, whatever, and I said, I'm just going to go off around the corner and whatever, but um, called them all around, and there was this big, big, loud limo with, like, 
disco lights inside it and whatever. And inside were all the straw willies and all the hats and the, the whole thing was inside. And so we used that vehicle to just, to, for an hour to do the whole sort of like, you know, tacky bit Very without good. going into okay. a pub. And got the stripper in as well. Um, and did that whole bit and then just uh, then took all the stuff off and then had a uh, normal fun had night. a nor- normal night went into a bar and a club and just partied like anyone else we didn't need to f- I didn't I think I wanted to, ha- to have the experience but I think um, that when when you go into spaces and you take them over and you don't respect queer spaces and you yeah. don't acknowledge it I think it's, it's problematic yeah. Yart um, all right, uh, uh, there's a floating mic around the gaff because has anyone got any questions? Well, how long are we here? We're here nearly an hour and a half now, so I'm trying to I'll try and wrap it up shortly. But uh, has anyone got any questions? Uh, it can be about anything. Our phone numbers. <laughs> <laughs> any questions at all? All right, so do you want to go home? <laughs> this gentleman at the back, with a, uh, he's got a fetching elbow. Uh, how's it going? I What's just the crack, got a question guys? for Tony or Will over here, yeah. Um, I'm just wondering how do you feel uh, education is going in secondary schools for the whole LGBT community? Oh. Like I know when I was in secondary school, um, we got little to no sexual education at all. Like I left to go on to first year college, not knowing any of the STIs, yeah. any of the symptoms. Um, you know, we had a teacher, a female teacher, and we were an all-male CBS school. Yeah. And she was too nervous and intimidated to talk about anything sexual-wise in our SBHE class. So. How do you feel it's going, and is there any progress? You, you're going to sound like a plant now that I've put, planted you in the audience, because that's exactly what I want to talk about tonight. So, um, the, because of the ethos of the Catholic schools, they are, are not obliged to teach the, the curriculum, any curriculum that the government comes up with. Right now, there is a sex education bill going through the doll. Well, I say going through, it's stalled. So it was introduced as a private member's bill, and it's, it's, it's to update the Education Act to bring in uh, factual, objective sex education for in schools, including LGBT inclusiveness and um, also you know, gender inclusiveness. Consent is in there as well, and sexual health. So we went through the second uh, committee stage of the doll, but it's been held up right now by the government. Um, there is a procedural matter in government uh, after committee stage where the, 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 you, you know, you bring a bill in and they say, right, is there money to cover this? And it's called the money message. And the Department of Finance says, yeah, there is money to cover that. I mean, an education bill, what does it mean? Some training, okay? Uh, right now, the government are not going to give the, uh, the people who brought in that bill the money message. So it's blocked, it's stopped where it is in its tracks in the doll, and the person that is responsible for that is Fianna Gael, and the people at the top of that is uh, Leo Varadkar. And and, uh, and this week, we were, last yesterday, we were outside the doll uh, doing a demonstration about the blocking, the government blocking this education bill. Uh, it is I don't know a single person, you know, I haven't talked to a single person says, oh, you know, I got plenty of sex education at school, you know, I'm, and the, and the situation is right now that we have, back in 2017, there was a report done by, uh, a survey done by HIV Ireland, and it asked people between the ages of 18 to 65 various questions about sexual health. And, you know, 24% of, of, of people thought that you get HIV from kissing, which is ridiculous. 14% uh, think you can get it from a toilet from seat. From a toilet seat. In this day and age, yeah. honestly. And, 
And here's the, and, but 93% of people in that survey said there should be comprehensive sex education school, including teaching people about, young people about HIV. Now, the reality of that, if you're not teaching people, or especially young people about sexual health, is that it's going to continue the way it is. And right now, a, a 15 to 24 year olds make up 50% of all chlamydia cases in Ireland. Fuck. 50%. That is reality of it. So shame on you, Leo Varadkar, for blocking that bill. Like, oh, I, and, a, I just, and a hashtag <laughs> sex ed bill. And just, the one other thing I just wanted to say just really quick was what I found massively conflicting in school was, and the same with all our teachers, including my own, was my SPHE teacher, who was supposed to provide us with sexual information and that kind of education, was also our religion teacher. Yeah, so, oh, me too. Um, and they go hand in hand in college, which yeah. I don't understand how that works. Like a lot of people who go into do religion, edu religious education, they do that teaching and they also do the SPHE course. Mm -hmm. And how do they align? They don't align. That's I, the problem. I, it's I think it's a very deliberate thing yeah. to make yeah. sure that it, it's almost like, okay, you can have your sex education, but we've got to have Christ looking over. Yeah. <laughs> 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 er, er, earlier on, earlier on, before we came on tonight, a, a blind boy, Will and I, were chatting about um, just old government legislation, and I was actually filling them in on the fact that I was prosecuted in 1995 under the Dance Act of 1935, and the Dance Act was brought in by De Valera under pressure from the Catholic Church because they were really worried about the proliferation of jazz clubs in Ireland, which is basically the house music of its day in the 1930s. And the, the church was really distraught at the idea that if you allow people to congregate and have a good time and get jizzy, not only might it actually end up with people having babies, but God forbid, I mean, the bigger picture is that if you allow people into a, a place where they can dissuade themselves of their anxieties and everything else, people get chatting and start having a convo about, hey, this society is shit. Why don't we get a bit subversive and actually yeah. move it on a little bit? And this law, so it's quite extraordinary, it was brought in in 1935 because the church was afraid of the proliferation of jazz clubs. It still exists, and it's one of the reasons why we don't have a, f a fully functioning dance club industry in this country, and I get prosecuted under it in 1995, and I have to spend an what, afternoon... What, what was it you did? Like, what did they say? Running a dance club until 3 o'clock in the morning, which was fabulous in Dublin. Um, and this copper comes in and starts giving me loads of jip, and I'm going, okay, whatever. Anyway, me and the venue owner, Paddy Dunning, who owns the button factory in Dublin, were taken to court, him, the venue owner, me, the promoter. He's sweating, he's going, I don't want to lose my license, whatever. And I'm going, look, let me into that witness box. I want to fucking give it socks about how we need to change our laws and how the reality is that the kids are going out and having a good time and everything and, you know, this needs to stop, whatever. And um, anyway, the Paddy is put into court. Sorry for banging that. Is that really it was your leg, it was grand. Yeah, so anyway, Paddy, Paddy, Paddy takes the witness box and anyway, he argues the toss and um, we're both up there. I, he gets fined the maximum fine in 1995, which was five punts. <laughs> <laughs> so we have spent an entire afternoon of taxpayers' money 
in there under a 60-year-old piece of legislation. He gets fined five points. And then my turn comes up, and I'm going, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sort of intellectualizing the fact that the kids are going out. And also, I'm going out, and I want to make a career, and blah, 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 blah. And we should be able to go out and drink and dance whenever we want, with responsibility, obviously. But this idea that Mammy Era infantilizes us yeah. and continues to infantilize us and says, no, you can't be trusted to actually drink at 5 o'clock in the morning, unlike the Spanish or the Dutch or the Germans or whoever, whoever, whoever. And psychology and you can't would be say trusted. that makes us irresponsible. And you can't be trusted to dance at 5 o'clock in the morning or 6 o'clock in the morning either. And I'm going... Irish people shouldn't be trusted to dance. Yeah, anyway. and you know what happens? <laughs> yeah, but you know what happens, blind boy? Wow. We become the stereotype. Yeah. If the state, if Mammy Era says you can't be trusted, you're going to be a drunken fucking mess, we become the drunken mess, as, as is what happens. And then yeah. there's no harm reduction. There's no grown-up conversation. And we still have these ancient laws that continue to infantilize us. I'm going, hold on a second. We really need a fucking revolution about stuff like this. Absolutely. Sorry, I'm on my blind boy soapbox here. But <laughs> you're no. grand. You're grand. Any other questions? This chap here. Is the mic all the way over there? How can we do some type of... Uh, See, I've got a few listeners in Sierra Leone, and uh, I don't want to be... I do, I've got three listeners in Sierra Leone. So we need to make sure it goes into the microphone, or else I'll be repeating your question. God bless, cuz. Crack. Um, I might be completely wrong about this, but I remember reading a story about... Um, Irvine Welch has a short story about uh, a black, black lad who was a junkie, and uh, he got beaten up by the guards... And at the time, there was a Is movie. it a true story or a no, fiction? No, it's, it's just a fictional short yeah. story. But it seems from his upbringing that it might have been relevant, say. But um, there was a black lad, he was a junkie, he got beaten up by the guards, and he got set up. And uh, it, um, it, the way they go out, there's um, activists outside, and they pick and choose. They say, no, not him, because he's a junkie, and we don't want, they're trying to fly, fight for black rights. And same with Rosa Parks, wasn't the original girl to not go to the back of the um, bus. It was someone else. Yeah. Was, yeah. yeah. So uh, I was wondering with the, the casement and the lin, would there be a similar thing? And do you feel as activists yourself who's, who had seen the gay rights kind of movement move so much in Ireland, is it a necessary evil or is it a complete betrayal when uh, you, you selectively store them look for now. Choose who your heroes are? Yeah, well, you selectively um, propagandise your movement. A, a little bit like with Repeal recently, where we're, we're seeing uh, people who weren't part of the grassroots movement taking a little bit more credit than they should be taking credit for. Yeah. Uh, it's not even that. It's the, the choice you make where you are, are looking for inclusiveness, but you exclude certain parts of your movement because they're not the... TV friendly kind of oh, too. Panty talks okay. about that. Panty talks about being on a train to Mayo and seeing somebody who was a bit too gay uh, for her. Okay. Uh, and in a way, sort of reflects what you're just talking about. You know that um, there are there are degrees of acceptance and degrees of tolerance. But uh, am, am I getting this? Am I getting? Yeah, this yeah. Is it, would like you almost see it's a necessary evil to um, to. As, as baby steps into the, the for any revolutionary movement, say, or any kind like, of thing how, like that. Like, like how third wave feminism will say that second wave feminism yeah, yeah. wrote out women of colour. And yeah. actually, second wave feminism hugely emboldened the Irish uh, lesbian gay civil rights movement. I mean, yes. it's no coincidence we have the second wave fem feminism in 1971 
the same year that the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Movement was founded, which had a big impact on the convo that was happening all over Ireland around civil liberties in general. And I am Would you see a correlation? Uh, I remember I spoke on my podcast about... Uh, Stonewall, how Stonewall happened because of the general sense of civil yeah. rights that was ha- and anti-Vietnam. Absolutely agree. With I absolutely agree with North. you on that. I absolutely agree with you on that. I just think they feed off each other, and then it's about simply people being emboldened. Look, at the end of the day, all revolutions are about people being brave enough to be real, to be a witness to our times. Doesn't matter whether we're talking about sexuality, gender, ethnicity, religious identity, whatever, 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 craziness. Um, it's all about being a witness to our times. It's about standing up and being real and finding our voice. And when we do that, we empower other people around us who have yet to find their voice. It's very important. So would you Empathy s- is about being mindful of, of other people who are yet to find their voice when we have already found ours and they're struggling and to be that to be that linchpin to be that little thing that will provoke people to get to that next stage i, I think uh, in answer to that i think there is the people in the movement and and this and so i'd be turning back at myself i ask myself constantly when i look around at people a group of people who are fighting on an issue and i would look around and say where is the person of color here where are the trans people where are the travelers if I if I if I don't see any of them in the room, when we have we have we're not doing our job, we are not including people. So in every conversation I have, and that's why I asked about before, what, have you seen a person uh, you know speak out in the media who is a woman with HIV or living with HIV, and nobody did. And I asked myself that even culturally, like last year, I asked myself a question. It kind of stunned me. It was like, name one single classical uh, woman composer. <laughs> Why don't we know one? Yeah. What's that? Yes. Very good. There's one woke person in the room. Well done. And I love her work. So I decided to spend a month just listening to classical women composers, and there's some brilliant ones out there. Amy Beach is one of my favorites. So. So now when I'm having conversations with somebody, it's kind of skewed that way. So we've got to ask ourselves those questions all the time. And as activists, even inside these small movements, we don't see people who are different to us and have different voices, and we're not doing our job, we're not being inclusive. Because what happened is that cisgendered white people like me, you know, showing you prep today, so look, isn't this great? I can take this drug and I'm going to get HIV. That sounds very privileged from my point of view, sitting up the stage like this. But if that isn't available as well to people who don't, who can't access it because of money or because of restrictions or because of culture within their social groups, then I have failed too. Yart, very good. Um, we're cl- we're coming close to the end. Yeah, we're ten o'clock. I'll take one last question if you had it. Otherwise, we can uh, go in peace. This lady here. <laughs> That's, that's the mayor. Mom. The mayor yeah. is ringing, saying... No, that's my mum. Will you close it up, please, blind boy? My mum my mom always has about three dinners ready for me when I come home. It's a combination of different things. So it'll be a pork chop, but spaghetti bolognese as well, and some cabbage and potato. Because uh, she'll just cook everything together. Because <laughs> she hasn't seen me in a while, so she'll make three dinners at once and put them all in the same plate. A buffet mother. Yeah. <laughs> Where's Tony gone? He's after vaporising, is he? He's spontaneously he's, he's human gone combusted. Off, he's gone off to looking. tell the cops we're all dancing inside the tent. 
Imagine that, he was a time traveller and we all looked away and that poof, gone into another dimension. He's back. He's back. All right. Uh, I wanted to ask, um, three of my relatives died of AIDS, um, so I'm really <laughs> sensitive when I hear about fundings getting cuts yeah. from the services. Do you think that in Ireland, uh, members of the LGBT communities are treated as members with a condition or a dysphoria, or it is, um, it is just a, a cut that the HSE would have done as, I don't know. <laughs> Are you, are, you saying, are you saying people who are living with HIV or are people... No, uh, do you think that pe members of the LGBT communities, um, because of the cuts that have been done to oh, the yeah. Uh, cuts, yeah. HIV, um, to the um, clinic, yeah. they've been treated as uh, citizens with a um, condition? Yeah, I mean, the, the cuts to the clinic are... The cl clinic is a, is, a, is, a, is a testing clinic, so... The, the clinic I'm talking about is a, a test, a, a clinic where you go and get um, PEP, which is a, a, a post-exposure prophylaxis, basically a morning-after pill for a potential exposure, where you get your STI test done, where you would get um, HPV vaccinations, where you pick up condoms and lube. So that is actually a community uh, clinic for, for gay and bisexual men and, and trans people. So it's specifically for that, because they are the most disproportionately affected by it but um, uh, the cuts I mean the cuts in 2009 are probably went across the board anyway but the problem is in, in every other uh, aspect th there's been increased spending in those you can't expect to keep spending low amounts of money and also as well um, the, the, the main problem is with it as well is that they're not talking about the the, the, the new uh, measures that we have. So, so here's an example, right? Something I, I annoy the HSE about all the time, and Simon Harris as well. Um, and that is, we've had prep in this country legally, we'll say, because you know I still get online illegally. Who cares? Come arrest me. I don't care. Um, but uh, we've had it for six months now, right? You, you won't see a single poster by the HSC in Panty Bar or in a gay magazine or anywhere that the community might read it that says, hey, you know, there's a revolutionary new drug out there that if taken as, as, as given or if you adhere to it, you won't get HIV. They're like, no, they, they, won't, they won't even promote the, the ground-breaking uh, drug that is actually going to be part of the solution of ending this crisis. And Will, what's even more extraordinary about that is if you just sort of quantify it in, on some crude economic basis. So I take one pill a day, my anti-HIV retroviral, which stops me from getting AIDS, it stops me from living a life, it stops me from infecting someone. It's 43 euro per day compared with 80 to 100 euro per month for, for, for PrEP. Yeah. So it's, it's a no-brainer when it comes to actually the rollout of PrEP for everyone, not just the most at-risk groups, for everyone. Everyone who needs it. Yeah, and it's, it's it quite extraordinary. I mean, eventually this is going to, it's going to happen, you know. But the thing that frustrates me a lot of the time, I'm sure it frustrates all of you, I know it frustrates these guys, is, you know, as a result of your own self-education or the conversations you have or stuff you read, you sort of come to a certain point, you, you, you make a conclusion about something that's happening in society and you're going, and then you look around and go, how fucking long is it going to take everybody to catch up to speed? And, and that's where I'm at a lot of the time. I'm going, wake up, 
wake up to the reality of where, where we find ourselves on lots, on lots of stuff. Not just about prep, about loads of other things. We could sit here all night about things that we all know. We can share stories about things we need to, where we, we, we all know how we need to do things better, or we just need to do things a certain way. And then we look around us and go, when on earth will people get up to speed? Yeah, but the thing is, the government have the means and resources to end this crisis, and it's not going to happen until we force them. And if that includes non-violent direct action, then so be it. Yeah. We will bring it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lovely. Um, thanks very much, everybody, for coming. That was lovely. And I want to say to the two boys, with the shared experience of the two E on the stage, it was a real pleasure because I feel this was pure historical importance. Do you know it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Recording. Yeah. I don't hear. Uh, I don't. I, like, I, there's a shit you're saying tonight. I've never heard it on mainstream media. You know what I mean? So I'm yeah. a fucking absolute pleasure to have the two E, and even better to have the two E in Clamell. Do you know what I mean? So, Will St. Leger, Tolly Walsh. Is it St. Leger or Salinger, man? Salinger, if you're from Clare. All right. Yeah. Well, I'm from Limerick, so it's St. Leger. No. Uh, <laughs> well, you can. The, the, even people How do Limerick, you pronounce it? I say St. Leger. St. Leger. But okay. there'll be cousins from Clare tomorrow who'll be calling me Salinger, and then there'll be people who'll call me St. Leger. Salinger sounds like you'd be a bit of a fascist. <laughs> it does. Do you know what I mean? It's a pure. Well, I'm dressed in black, aren't it's I? A, a nasty German name. So, we'll say it later, Tony Walsh, uh, actually, Walsh down in Tip is, is pronounced Welsh. Which, which, which the thing is, is actually quite cute because the Irish for Walsh is Branach, which actually translates as Welsh person. So actually the local, the local pronunciation of Walsh, Welsh, is sort of very close to the original Irish. I did not know that. Yeah. Very good. All right, yort everybody, have a lovely evening. Wasn't that lovely? Have a charming evening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.